tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Don't get too close to the radio. My 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 cold seems to have come back. But hey, why should I bother you with my problems? <laughs> what we we heard St. Paul say a few days ago that the wages of sin is death. Well, I think I told you that take out for taxes and inflation. It's really just a tired feeling. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. I did something great fun this weekend. I actually um, read and listened to the entire letter to the Romans. Are you I mean, kidding I, me? No, I would, I would never kid you. Um, but, and it occurred to me, we don't do that. We get little Bible snippets all the time. And... We don't understand that these letters were written for a specific purpose to a specific community um, using specific vocabulary. And I, that that's fascinating to me. And I, I you know, I, I kind of I found what I like to think of as a smoking gun about my harebrained theory. Um, again, with my harebrained theory, I believe that St. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans because he wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to uh, create a, a rabbinical base for Jews and Greeks being in the same community, some of them following kosher law, some of them not following kosher law, because there had been Christians in Rome, but they were thrown out along with all of the Jews, apparently, by the Emperor Claudius around the year 50 AD. And after Claudius died, and Nero and his wife, Papea, uh, uh, were running things. Papea was very pro-Jewish. She let, uh, Nero decided to let the Jews, who included the Christians, they were not thought of as, Christians were not thought of as separate from Jews, to allow them back into Rome. And the, the Jews were returning to Rome. Priscilla and Aquila, with whom Paul uh, worked in, in um, I believe, in Corinth, was, um, were refugees 
from uh, this expulsion of the Jews. And I'm sure Paul got to hear about the situation in Rome. Uh, from then, there had been riots, apparently, over, over who is the Messiah. That seems to be what Suetonius is saying when he says there were disturbances about a certain crestus. Well, I's and E's were interchangeable in ancient orthography. The rules were not that strict. Orthography is how you spell stuff. So I think that's why St. Paul wrote it. Well, I kind of found, and I'd never noticed it before, a bit of a smoking gun, as it were, about my harebrained theory. Now, let me get computer number three up here and find out where I put it. In, in Romans, the 13th chapter, we find, uh, oh, good grief. Uh, in Romans, the 13th chapter, there's an abrupt change, uh, and it makes no sense. Paul starts talking about the, the, the government. Um, I can pull that up. I thought I had it pulled up on my other. Yeah, here it is. Submission to governing authorities. Rome, uh, the 13th chapter, uh, we read in the 12th chapter, um, which is, of course, the one just before it. That's how they do the numbering there. Let me pull that one up, too. Come on. Come on, come on. Oh, Romans. No, it's not going to happen. Um, Good grief. Good grief. Well, Romans, the 13th chapter, or the 12th chapter, is all about can't we all just get along? And then Paul, oh, I, I need to find it here. Let me I'll pull it up. Okay, here we go. I got it. I've got it now. Paul starts the 12th chapter by saying, make your bodies a living sacrifice. Uh, you know, the, then he says in verse three, for by grace given to me, I say to you, everyone, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And then there's love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then verse seven, you do not repay anyone evil for evil. In other words, can't we all just get along? And then he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the next thing is, um, uh, oh, is let everyone be subject to governing authorities. That makes no sense. Be nice to one another. Get along. And then be subject to governing authorities. There were no chapter headings. There were no verses in the original text. It flowed one thing into another. And, and uh, there wasn't even spaces between the letters or words. So, it goes from be nice to one another, be kind to your enemies, and let everyone be subject to governing authorities. This makes no sense if it's not about the disturbances in the community, the violent riots, which Romans hated, especially in Rome, the violent riots about the Messiah in the Jewish community. Um, I, I, looking at this, it's, it's pretty clear. Now, back to chapter 7. Um, which is about the law and the flesh, that the law is is spiritual, but it it awakens sin in the flesh. Paul, this is a very difficult idea, and I have to admit I'm only beginning to to plumb its depths, shall we say? But um, um, Paul starts the seventh chapter off with a legal precedent. If a if a if a woman is in a marriage, which is a covenant. And her husband dies. She's no longer bound by the covenant. And what he's saying is, if uh, you're, you've died, you're no longer bound by the covenant. Well, you're, you're, you died in Christ. If you're baptized, you're incorporated into his body. 
And Jesus died on the cross. So therefore, there must be a new covenant. He says the old covenant, he says this repeatedly, the old covenant hasn't passed away, but there is a new and a better one that you can enter into by baptism. So that's, I think that's all fascinating. Now let's go to uh, Romans, the eighth chapter, where we find ourselves today, but let's go to the beginning of Romans, the eighth chapter. Uh, he's talking about in, in the seventh chapter, uh, let's pull up the end of the seventh chapter, um, sin and death in verse 13. Uh, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I, I, what I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, and this higher law on me, I'm incapable of it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, I myself, with my mind, serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, very interestingly, he goes on to say, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Abrupt change in the eighth chapter. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed you from the law of sin and death. In other words, that first marriage, it's dead. Now you can, you can, in a sense, be wedded to Christ. So the law weakened by the flesh was powerless to bring you salvation, to bring this new life. What was the purpose of, of the law? To point out our failures and weaknesses. So uh, the righteous decree of the law might be filled, fulfilled in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, what does that mean? Remember, the word spirit means breath. You got to understand that, uh, you know, and, and how to say this in a way that's coherent. This idea of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, being a living and active person. So often we neglect that relationship. I was actually with a, a priest uh, at dinner, uh, at, you know, big dinner, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't charismatic or Pentecostal or anything. He was talking about the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit was actually alive. And I thought, this is great. I mean... Uh, as I say, I've been involved with the, the, these the Pentecostal movements for since the, the beginning in the Catholic Church, and it's still difficult for me to really conceive of the Holy Spirit in a personal way. Um, uh, I, I pointed out many times to you that in the in the old Mass there was one time where you spoke to the Holy Spirit, "Come, sanctify your spirit." Almighty and eternal God. That was the only prayer in the Mass addressed to the Holy Spirit. And since the words of the Offertory have been changed, that's cut out. We don't even speak to the Holy Spirit now in a direct way in the Mass. To me, that's problematic. And that's why I start the show with a prayer to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a person capable of a personal relationship. Now, all sorts of people say, well, I feel the Spirit. No, forget feeling the Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit definitively saying in your mind as well as in your heart? Feelings are not a good way to discern the Holy Spirit. The consistent teaching of the church is a good way to discern the Holy Spirit. But still, one can ask, with, as did the apostles, um, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the verse in the Acts of the Apostles, when they say, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. How do they know it seemed good to the Holy Spirit? They knew they had heard from the Holy Spirit. So the, the, this, uh, this idea of the divine breath, the breath of God breathed among them in a way that was understandable and sensible and reasonable. So for Paul, 
this distinction between flesh and the spirit, the law spoke to the flesh. It was A, B, C, D, E. It was 613 commandments, tick off the boxes. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit said to, for instance, Ananias, Jesus appeared to Ananias. That would have been in the spirit, um, Ananias in Damascus, and, and said, I want you to go uh, baptize Paul. And Ananias said, he'll kill me. I mean, the visionary life of the early church was very vital. And it really still is vital among us. We just don't really pay much attention to it. Well, so that's the beginning of the letter. And then uh, um, uh, uh, we, we get to today's reading. Let me, let me get back to today's reading, if I can get there. Hold on. No, no, no. Come on, come on. I'll get there. I'll get Good there. Good grief. Good grief. You know, I click a button on the computer, and it just doesn't do what I want it to do. You know, I really think that long before artificial intelligence, they'll come up with artificial stupidity. All right, we're back. That's that's the mouse. I found my mouse. That's the mouse. Okay, we're in Romans, the 8th chapter, the 12th verse, finally. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He's introducing a whole new reason for raison d'etre, as they say in France, uh, a reason for being. Um, hold on, i got to find my cough button here. Excuse me. I don't want to infect any of you. All right. Uh, he jumps into this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption, through which we cry, Abba, Father. There's a doctorate in that line. Suffice it to say that, that um, um, of the three monothe monotheistic religions, um, we are the only one that talks about the fatherhood of God being a universal thing. Well, don't the Jews believe in the fatherhood of God? Well, yes, they do. But they believe that he is the father of, of, of God, or that God is the father, not of human beings, but of Israel. Uh, way back, uh, like 130 AD, Rabbi Akiva, who was one of the great um, early Jewish teachers, well, he says that every, he affirms that everyone uh, is created in God's image, but the special, intimate father-child relationship is reserved for his relationship to Israel. He says, Beloved is man, for he was created in the image of God. Still greater was the love that it was made known to him that he was created in the image of God. As it is written, for in the image of God he made him. Beloved are Israel, for they were called children of God. Still greater was the love that was made known to them. In other words, the only ones who have the right to be called children of God and thus God being their father, are Israel. So God is the father of Israel, not of humanity, according to Rabbi Kiva. And the fatherhood of God is, is a limited fatherhood in, in the Judaism of the time of Christ and of Paul. And actually, still, the, the, the Jews, Orthodox Jews will talk about the fatherhood of God, but it's a little more hesitant than us. Jesus said, I go to my father and your father. When he said that, he was... He was saying that God is as much your father as he is my father. Uh, by adoption, but still, that's fatherhood. So Paul introduces this new idea that the, the, the Holy Spirit, that there's more than, than the old covenant offered. There is adoption. And this is his big, his big deal, that uh, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And by the way, Abba does not mean father in Hebrew. It means Papa. 
It's a term of endearment. So, well, um, <clears throat> let's go um, real quick. Let me look at the time very quickly to the gospel. I, I need to comment on that. But, but you see what I'm driving at with the letter to the Romans. Paul is making the point that God is the father of all human beings, Greek and Jewish alike, and they are siblings, whether they like it or not. They need to learn to get along. And, and then we jumping ahead to chapter 13, stop rioting. It's not doing any good. I really think that this is the context of this letter and without understanding in context. Well, to me, that's a great example um, that that um, that context. Uh, the letters of Paul make no sense. They don't seem to follow a pattern. Sometimes he goes from one thing to another thing to another. But if you understand the context if you understand that there had been this political situation in Rome that had affected the Jewish community and its its and those members of the Jewish community and the Gentile community that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, if you understand that, oh, that's why he throws in the governing authorities right after he says we should be nice to one another. You know, I would have said we should be nice to one another because the governing authorities won't be. But he didn't say that. He said obey the governing authorities. They're appointed by God. Well, let's quickly go to the gospel here. There was a, a woman uh, who was in the synagogue for 18 years. She is, was crippled by a spirit, bent over. I have known women who had a terrible, they call, used to call them dowager's humps. Uh, it's, it's an osteoporosis condition, and it will bend a person over. You mean that's caused by the devil? I think this is an important thing to understand, that illness is not directly caused by the devil. And if someone is sick, we can't say, well, they need an exorcism. However... On the spectrum of human misery, illness is demonic in that sense, that that the afflictions that come to us, excuse me, cough button, uh, the afflictions that come to us like a bad cold are the result of the sin of Adam and Eve, and in that sense are the result of demonic influence, and the devil <laughs> makes our life miserable with everything at his disposal. We catch a virus and then the devil comes and tempts us to despair or to not use the cough button or things like that. So, um, you know, there isn't a one-to-one -one ratio, but the, the, the fallen and weakened human condition is, in a sense, the devil's playground. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Well, the rabbis uh, hated cruelty to animals. Uh, they were This was a, a very lovely and um, very real part of rabbinic teaching. And they would have no problem in getting uh, an animal uh, that had fallen into a pit out of the pit on a Sabbath. They developed interesting ways to do it. I think one of the ways, I'm not sure if it's in Talmud or in another commentary, but if you throw a bunch of cushions down into the hall so that the animal can walk out on its own with a little help from you, well, that's not work. So, you know, it's just they have all these convolutions and permutations of how to get an animal out of a pit, but they're going to do it. So... Jesus says, you play actors, you're being so pious. I mean, you feed your, your animals uh, on, on, on Sabbath. Um, shouldn't this daughter of Abraham have been unbound from her, from the thing that was binding her? And he just, it was kind of a reduction to the absurd, a reduction to absurdum argument. And, and that's why Jesus uh, said that about, about animals. You, you Pharisees are famous for your concern for animals. Shouldn't you be concerned for this poor woman? 
All right. Uh, that's it. Let us go to um, a break. We'll come back uh, with letters, and the phones will be open at 888-914-9149. That's, of course, our Catholic Order of Foresters toll-free line at 888-914-9149. It's free. Take advantage of it. Call in. Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. Jesus is the answer for the world. great song Jesus is the answer but uh, I remember a book with Jesus the answer was the question pretty much everything as far as I'm concerned all right let us now go to letters uh, oh by the way the phone lines are totally opened on our Catholic order of foresters toll-free line it's toll-free so 888-914-9149 888-914-9149. Maybe people are afraid if they talk on the phone to me, they'll they'll catch my cold. Don't worry, you won't. I don't think. All right, where was I? I was doing a letter here. All right. Last week, someone called into your show and said that they heard a priest say that uh, infancy was owned by the devil or something like that, that uh, that that babies belong to the devil. Well, it's kind of cynical. There are some children I know who baptized them. They managed to unholy the holy water. You disagreed. I think the person who called and the priest in question might be referring to the fact that baptism is considered an exorcism. In a simple form, exorcism is performed at the celebration of baptism. You know, even people who are possessed do not belong to the devil. Um, if you give yourself to the devil uh, by, the, by occult practices, perhaps you can say that you belong to the devil, but uh, possession is not even people are possessed uh, uh what is it there's i forget the three levels there's temptation obsession possession uh that that that's we belong to god and and uh the devil's going to have to get used to it um uh i think that that's an important thing to understand uh so uh, an exorcism in in a possession uh, the devil takes over the physical um um, capacities uh, of a person, but they, they're not, uh, as far as I understand, they're not owned by the devil. They're still owned by God. Um, that, that, uh, uh, and I think that's important to understand. Uh, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I am a student at a rather liberal Catholic in name only college. Our campus is abuzz with the possibility of deaconesses. Since one of the deaconesses existed in the early church, what would a restored female diaconate look like in a modern church? A deaconess would not be an ordained position, would it? Uh, how would the duties of modern deaconess differ from the duties of a modern deacon? Well, in the early church, they had great sense. And, and this is as I understood it, that there were people who, uh, um, there, were, there were deaconesses to, to assist in baptism for women and, and children. Uh, that, that 
decency demanded because you were wearing only the suit you received on the day of your birth from your mother uh, when you were baptized by immersion in the in the early church. That was the usual way to do it, though they did use sprinkling uh, when they had to. Uh, that's what we read in the Didache. But uh, generally speaking, the preparation for baptism would have been inappropriate for a, a man to be in such an intimate uh, teaching relationship to a woman or to a child. And I think that that's a great good sense on the part of the early, the early church. That was the, one of the primary roles. And they, they, they ministered to people where it would be inappropriate for a man to minister to them. There is no evidence that there was an ordained diaconate. The word deacon simply means minister or table waiter or servant. So yes, there were women in service in the early church, uh, um, but there's no evidence anywhere that it was an ordained position. In fact, is the Pope has just said that women cannot be admitted to the um, sacrament of holy orders. The past three popes have said that consistency, consistently, and Saint John Paul the Great said it very, very definitively, uh, and and uh, in, in a way that certainly sounds infallible. So there you go, anonymous female college student, and you know, well, that's not fair. What do you mean that's not fair? You understand? You have to understand that that Jesus lived down the road from where there were temples to mother goddesses who had, that had priestesses. If he had wanted to bring women into that sacrament, he would have. Well, why didn't he? Because it's kind of a. I know that, that this this makes a true feminist howl, but. <sighs> In a sense, the ordination of men is a kind of affirmative action for the weaker sex, meaning men, that that women are the bearers of life. And men, I actually knew someone who was very woke back when I was in college. We were woke then, too. He was very resentful that he couldn't be a mother. He was nuts. But he used to go about saying, it's just not fair that I can't, I can't get pregnant and be a mother. I thought... <laughs> Oh, don't, don't, don't ask for things like that. Who knows? But um, uh, the, 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 the giving of life is, is so sacramental. And we think, well, that's just a dodge. That's just an excuse. I don't think so. I think it's real uh, that, that um, men need the extra sacrament in a certain way. But I don't want to get into that. But, yeah, the, the, there was never any evidence that there was a, a sacramental Diaconate for women. All right, let's see. Uh, do Orthodox Jewish women shave their heads when they marry? Kind of. Yeah, I don't know if they shave their heads, but they cut their hair very short, and then they might wear a wig. So, uh, yes, that's true. Uh, that that um, they don't. It's very interesting in terms of the um, Saint Paul's statement that a woman's hair is her glory. Uh, and it, it even tempts the angels. So, all right. If we roll over, this is from uh, David. Um, if we roll over from 5th to 6th, we arrive at thou shalt not adulterate. I don't know. Oh, he's talking about some obscure thing about vaccination. And I, I'm, I may be a devout hypochondriac, but I don't know much about medicine. And then I got six questions from, from uh, somebody in Austin. Uh, Mary, um, blaspheme and blasphemy are the same thing. One's a noun, one's a verb. Is that only believed? And what, what does it mean? It means to say that something is unimportant. It, it doesn't matter. Hold on. <clears throat> it's unimportant. 
and to blaspheme means to say, oh, the Holy Spirit's nothing. Um, and is that only believed in our Catholic faith? No. Uh, blasphemy is pretty generally uh, believed, uh, I would say, by most religions, certainly Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Why only the Holy Spirit, not God or Jesus, too, if we believe in the Trinity? Well, the Holy Spirit, you know, I'm sure what she's referring to is why is this bl- is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Can it be forgiven in this age or in the age to come? That's because if we renounce the Holy Spirit, we're saying that God is not doing what God is doing. Uh, that that we've always taught that what can be said of the Holy Spirit can be said of the Father, the Son, and what can be said of the Father and the Son can be said of the Holy Spirit. That the Trinity don't don't operate separately. Uh, they 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 operate together uh, in unity. And so the point is that the Pharisees had said that Jesus was casting out the devil by the power of devils. It was a refusal to recognize the action of God. And God acts always through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he created everything out of nothing. So this is, this is why uh, um, uh, Jesus said that about not to be forgiven, the unfor- so-called unforgivable sin. If we change our mind about it, if we allow God to work in us, then we can step out of it. The reason it can't be forgiven, remember that to forgive means to let go. And when we say, oh, that healing, that was just crowd hysteria, God's trying to say something to us. If we refuse to let the Holy Spirit speak to us, God allows that. But when we say, I guess I was wrong, maybe that really was a miracle, then God can begin to work in our lives. So uh, that the, the Holy Spirit is the operative person of the Trinity at the beginning of creation and in the church today. So that's why um, that's so um, important. And why is it unforgivable? Because God will not let go, which is what to forgive that sin, forgive means. God will not let it go unless we let it go first. Um, what would blasphemy look like? Uh, that's, that's, nah, that's, that, that's not God. That's just, that's just crowd hysteria. That's what it would look like. Where would I find passages in the Bible about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Oh, good grief. Um, <laughs> oh, well, I suppose I can find that. Um, answer. I think I answered um, all, all, uh, um, oh, there's the weighty music, the, all of the questions. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay, I found it. I found it. It's Matthew 12, 31 and <coughs> 32. Sorry about that. All these buttons I'm pressing. One, the cough button wasn't one of them. All right, let's see here. Um, well, this is kind of a long thing. It's really quite good. Um, but I, I don't know that I can go into it. Uh, someone wrote that they were struck by this message from Romans, the seventh chapter. Paul, is, when I know that good does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh, the willing is ready at hand, but the doing good is not. Uh, what, what I think St. Paul is saying is that Greeks and Romans are all prone to sin. doesn't matter, if, or Greeks and Jews are prone to sin. doesn't matter if you're Greek, doesn't matter if you're Jew. Prone to sin. You need, you need Christ. But um, she's talking, uh, this person, I'm not sure if it's a she or he. Let me see. Um, yeah, it's a she. Uh, Paul's referring to concupiscence, mantenity, sin, and general sense. 
you know, I, I think, Betty, your thoughts are very appropriate on it. But, you know, there are two ways we look at, at St. Paul's letter. And what I kind of have a tendency to do, as you've noticed, is to put it in its historical context to see what it's saying. But on the other hand, one can take a principle from it, uh, and that principle can stand on its own. For instance, uh, uh, what I would do, uh, that I do not, what I do, that I would not. St. Paul said that's an older kind of way to translate it. That's a moral principle, and you can, it stands on its own. But I also find it fascinating when it stands in its context, and I think one can understand it uh, more fully. All right. Let's see. I think we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And the phones are, of course, open at 888-914-9149. You can support Relevant Radio in many ways. Joining a giving society, donating a vehicle that you don't need anymore, and now donating a piece of land or other real estate. Donate now at relevantradio.com slash property. Operator. Operator. Information. Information. Give me Jesus. Jesus on the line. Jesus on the line. Didn't look great song. Jesus on the main line. Well, that said, let us go to uh, the word of the day. And, you know, I kind of, I was looking at the word here, the leader of the synagogue, when Jesus cured this woman, the leader of the synagogue was indignant that, that Jesus had cured on the Sabbath. When I think of indignant, I think of someone sort of spluttering and, oh, well, you can't do that. And I don't think that's exactly what the word means. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's aganakton. Uh, it really means, agan means excessive, and akton probably means pained. He was excessively pained. Um, I think it was probably very sincere on his part. Uh, he was just overcome with, I don't know if you've ever been in a church service where someone does something outrageous, you're pained. Um, I think it was rather sincere. Um, and But Jesus goes on to call them hypocrites, which as you know, because I tell you all the time, that means play actors. And the best the best actor has convinced himself of the role. He's he's in, in the zone. He's you know, if you're playing Julius Caesar in a drama, you become Julius Caesar. And uh, um, the first person you have to convince of the credibility of your role as an actor is, of course, uh, the uh, yourself. So he was genuinely upset. Um, genuinely, um, when I hear indignant, I think of someone who's upset because of their personal dignity has been affronted. And I don't think that's what's going on. He was... He was really pained by Jesus had done something which shouldn't have happened in his synagogue. So just a thought. I don't know if I'm right on that, but nah, just some thinking about it. All right, let's go to uh, the phones. Hello, Ghostbusters. Well, not quite. Kristen from Appleton, Wisconsin, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. A uh, quick Hi. question for you. So, <laughs> Hello. You've talked about new age music and mass and how you're not a fan of it. 
Um, I'm wondering if you can clarify, what do you mean by new age music? Are we talking I, about I like taste and see or what? No, no, no. I, I don't think I said new age. I don't recall saying new age. If I did, I misspoke. Just trite and shallow music. What I'm The point I'm trying to make is that that we've become so conscious of how the liturgy makes us feel that we are forgetting about, oh, oh, there's, there's liturgical music in, in my head, but we, we forget about uh, um, the idea that I'm here to worship God. You know, it's about how I feel. And we're so accustomed to feeling, we're such romantics that, that, that we, we take the, uh, the reformers said, maybe this will be, this will be uh, helpful. The reformers 500 years ago said that, that mass was not a sacrifice. It was uh, about the instruction and consolation of, or edification of the people. When they said that, the church service ceased to be worship. You see, when I was a kid and the woolly mammoth still roamed, we have what we call the low mass. There was no music at all. The priest came out, faced the wall, and in a language we couldn't either hear nor understand, he changed body, bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ and offered it to the Father. And we knelt there and we followed along in our missiles and it was all about God. But in this kind of age in which we live now, it's all about how it makes me feel. If I don't feel it, it's not real. Honey, I don't feel love for you anymore. We're getting a divorce. And the Christian message, in part, is uh, this is about faith, about trust, not about feeling. And and love is what you do when you don't feel it. Uh, and the generation in which we live is exactly the opposite. And my point is that, that Gregorian chant, or chant in general, conforms the melody to the words. And the words of Scripture are written by the Holy Spirit. The words of hymns are written by people who come and go. And the word in a hymn, the the words are conformed to the melody. In other words, we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. We're listening to some guy who wrote a song in 1960 that he thought made would make people feel good and entertain them. Um, I'm not against hymns. There are some beautiful hymns. And prayer is the lifting of the heart and mind to God. And there are some hymns that really do help one lift the mind and the heart to God. But to squeeze out Bible text from the Mass in order to have some feel-good music, I think, is inappropriate. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yes, I think it does. And I appreciated the dialogue when I did tune in about, um, you know, oh, good. Yeah. standing firm. No, with music departments and what have you. But yes, no, I, no. I hear what you're saying and, and understand it better. You know, and I think, I think especially, and on a little note, you're a young person, much, much younger than I am. Um, I think that, you know, when we offer what the world has to offer, the world is better at doing it. But you go into a church where there are a bunch of people singing in a way you've never heard before and singing words from Scripture, it's very striking, you know, that, that it's something that the world can't offer. Whereas kind of elevator music that is kind of relaxing well you get that in an elevator or a grocery store but but the beauty of the catholic liturgy in part is because it it speaks of a of a different of another world a world yet to come and a world that's that's long mm -hmm. past so you're transported into another reality at a good liturgy so i hope that helps a little yes it does thanks father 
Thanks, Kristen. I'm honored that you listen. God bless. Let us now go to Mark from Apple Valley, Minnesota. <clears throat> Hi, Father. Um, I heard from a priest uh, a while back that uh, um, when during the Mass, when the uh, priest holds up the water and the wine, I mean the, the host and the wine um, separately, that that represents, not just represents, but that is the um, death of Christ. And then uh, when uh, the priest takes a piece of the host and drops it into the chalice, the reunion of the body and blood is the resurrection. I was wondering what you have on that. Well, what you're talking about is what we used to call the minor elevation, when the priest lifts up the host and the chalice, and there's no wine there, it's the precious blood, but he lifts up the body and blood of the Lord, and he says, through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, um, all glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father. That, that, That is, in a sense, that is Calvary, because Calvary was the offering of Christ. Uh, Christ offering himself to the Father. So, yeah. But the uh, the the fraction, they call it the, f- uh, the fraction uh, ritual or the breaking of the bread, uh, that has taken on a meaning. You know, it's uh, people look at it and say, oh, the body and blood of the Lord are reunited. But what that really comes from is an ancient Christian practice that, that a bishop from the next town over, a couple towns over, when he wanted to express unity with a bishop in another town, he would send a piece of the consecrated uh, um, host uh, hmm. carried probably by a deacon over to that bishop, and they would put it in the chalice. Uh, it was a symbol of unity. That's, where, it came, that's okay. where I was taught it came from, but it has taken on that meaning of the reuniting of the body and blood of the Lord, which, you know, the body and blood of the Lord aren't really separate. In the, the host is the body and blood of the Lord. The cup is the body and blood of the Lord. The host represents the body of the Lord. The cup represents the, the blood of the Lord, but the host is the body and blood of the Lord, and the cup is the body and blood of the Lord. They're, 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 it's called the doctrine of concomitance, that you can't separate them. This is a spiritual and a mystical thing, but it, it has taken on that symbolism. Does that help? Yes, it does, Father. Thank you. Good. Well, good. Thanks for calling in. Let's go to John from St. Cloud in Minnesota. Hey, John? Father, it's great yeah. It's great to talk to you. Can you hear me? Well, good. Yes. Yes, what can I do okay. for you? Uh, I, I thought I heard you say something earlier about uh, uh, <laughs> a, a woman that might have had a, a, a physical condition, you know, like a like a handicap and how that could be demonic. And, and I, I'm just trying to figure out if I heard you correctly. Well, it's it, today's reading. It talks about a woman had been crippled. Let me let me get the text up right here. And um, a woman was in the synagogue for 18 years who had been crippled by a spirit. She was bent over, completely incapable of standing erect. And that would certainly make it sound like disease was was from demonic influence. And in a sense, it is. It is not the same as possession. She was not possessed by by the devil. But the, the devil takes advantage of our human illnesses uh, that are the result, of we believe, of the fall of Adam and Eve. And with them, he, he tries to get us to, to uh, uh, be angry at God or to despair or to, to not trust God. 
it isn't a direct, it isn't the same as a demonic possession. Does that help a little? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'm concerned because, you know, we, we all have the human condition and we're all frail, you know, and we all are subject to, you know, um, yes, what happens. Exactly. Yes, I've got a terrible cold as we speak and, and uh, well, the devil can make me crabby with it, but I'm not going to let him. I'm just going to forward, go forward. But it's it's not caused by the devil. It's caused by a virus, I suspect. So the devil takes advantage of our human situation. Not all things are caused by the devil. So uh, one can one can say that well, the fall of Adam and Eve weakened our, our weakened human life, and that's true. But but not all things are caused by the devil. Sometimes we can blame ourselves or a virus. So I agree with you, John. Well, thanks for calling in. God bless. And I'm honored that you listen. Let's now go to Mary Jean from Hamburg, New Jersey. Mary Jean, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. It's nice to talk to you. Um, I would just wanted to talk about when you were talking about the priesthood. Um, we just had a study done on the Fathers of the Church and our pastor, Father mm-hmm. Chris, um, had an answer for that, and it, it came up, of course. He said the yes. church is Mother Church. She's the yeah. bride. And Jesus is yeah. the bridegroom, and he's always referred to himself as the bridegroom. And mm-hmm. the priests are in persona Christi, so they also yeah. have to be male, because it has to be the bridegroom married to the bride. It can't be too female, and that is why the priesthood must be male. Yeah, that's that's the symbolism of it, and and I agree with them that that uh, you know modern feminists would not. But when you think about it, if if ordination is empowerment for ministry, well then ordain women. But it's not just empowerment for ministry. The question isn't can uh, women be uh, priests, can women be fathers, can women be bridegrooms? And uh, the modern world would say, well, of course they can be, and the Lord says, no, they can't be. And that, he's exactly right. You know that 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 uh, that the liturgy um, it isn't a drama, but it has dramatic elements. And the priest stands in for Christ. The the congregation, men and women together, stand in for the bride, and the deacons uh, seem to stand in for the angels, the ministering spirits. So uh, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, dramatic presentation of Calvary, and uh, you know Jesus dying for his bride, whereas Adam failed to defend his bride. So there's a symbolism there that would be lost if we just look at this as well. It's just empowerment. And that's not just empowerment, not at all. The fact is, when I was a kid, the really powerful person in the parish was Mother Superior. If you wanted the gym on a Friday night, you didn't ask Father. You asked Mother Superior, who kept the keys in the calendar. So I think women, in a sense, have lost power because uh, the sisterhood is in great abeyance now. So... Well, thank you. That's I agree with you wholeheartedly and agree with your, your, your pastor. God bless you and give him my best, all right? You too, Father. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mary Jean. Let's go to Gary, who's calling in from San Mateo, California. Gary, what can I do for you? Father, you belong on the airways. Uh, you're the Fulton Sheen of the airways, and the Catholic Church would do wise to put you on television. So having oh, said that, I don't know about that. You, oh yes, <laughs> uh, your callers, uh, your callers and listeners would agree with that. But let well, me ask you it's this: just the man with the face for radio, as they say. But go on, what can I do for you? <laughs> there's, yes. a, there's a Catholic uh, in the stain of mortal sin, 
are their prayers received? Uh, yes. Yes, they are. I mean, uh, God, God hears everything. God hears uh, their prayers are received. In fact, is when I go to confession, I'm in fact praying. And if my prayer was not heard, how could I be forgiven? So, yes, God, you know, if you had a child who was far away and, and lost and, and alienated from you and you got a phone call, hi, this is your kid, would you not take it? I would. And so it is with God the Father. The, the story of the prodigal son, that father waited by the road, uh, apparently. If you look at the story with a fine-tooth comb, he waited by the road. And when he saw his boy coming from a long way off, he ran to greet him. So, you know, God does not turn his back on anyone. And people say, well, God turned his back on Jesus when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, he didn't. Not at all. If you read the psalm, Jesus is quoting the 22nd psalm. Yet will I praise you in the land of the living. I mean, it's a triumphant psalm that prophesies the, the crucifixion. Uh, it's, uh, God never, never turns his back on any of his children from Jesus on down. So I hope that helps a little bit. Michael. What can I do for you, Michael from Chelsea, Maine? What can I do for you? Yes, Father, I have a priest who says daily mass in a chapel, and most of the time it's just him and I there. But uh, according to the germ, is he allowed to skip the first reading in the responses and only read the gospel and then continue at mass? If he's sick and needs to get get to the rectory quickly, yes. But no, he's not. No, 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 no. no. I'm sure he's doing it because, well, I know the, I know, I know the epistle, you know, and I don't have to do this. You gotta, you gotta remember uh, that that even the epistles are uh, are written for uh, 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 written to glorify God. Uh, so no, he's not allowed to truncate that. So I hope that helps a little bit. Oh, while I'm thinking of it. It's Herb's birthday. My buddy Herb, who's uh, a, a Jewish Catholic, uh, he has an amazing uh, story of his testimony. He, on the eve of his wedding to a, a, a Gentile girl, he, the Lord appeared to him and walked him through all the scriptures that prophesied Jesus. And he called his bride in the middle of the night and said, when we come back from the honeymoon, I will be taking instructions in the Catholic faith. And boy, is he Catholic. So Herb, I don't know if you're listening, but happy birthday. God bless you. L'chaim. So, oh, there's the music. Boy, oh boy. It's, it's, I've learned a lot from Herb. So dear friend and a very devout Catholic. All right. Speaking of devout Catholics, Drew is coming up, so don't go anywhere. All right. God bless. Bye.